This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The next chapter in our country's history has begun, a chapter unfolding on two different paths. On Friday, Donald Trump took the oath of office as our 45th president, while on Saturday in Washington and elsewhere, there were marches and rallies in protest. Rita Braver and Chip Reed will report our Sunday Morning cover story. Hundreds of thousands came to Washington, joined by thousands more in cities around the world. Different places, but a common theme. They are not giving up the rights they have worked so hard to claim. This is the moment you will remember when women stood strong. Raising their voices ahead on Sunday morning. It's going to be only America First, America first. It was a day that broke with precedent after precedent. And yet some things remained the same. A new president, a new chapter for America. It's all just ahead this 
Sunday morning. Henry Winkler is an actor turned director and producer who's still enjoying plenty of happy days, even though the TV show by that name is long gone. Mo Rocca has our Sunday profile. Sunday, Monday, happy days. When Henry Winkler played the Fonz, he made TV history by water skiing over a shark. There you go. Nice job. So it only made sense that he took us fishing in Idaho. Thank you. Thank you. Fly fishing with Henry Winkler. Later on Sunday morning. Hey, when do I get to try that? As soon as I catch a fish. All right. Billions and billions served is the boast of one very familiar fast food chain. The story of exactly how that all came to be is being served up this morning by our Ben Tracy. With more than 36,000 restaurants around the world, McDonald's is the biggest name in fast food, and a man named Ray Kroc is considered the company's founder. This might be the best hamburger I've ever had in my life. But a new movie starring Michael Keaton sets the record straight on how McDonald's got its start. What did you learn that surprised you? Uh, there was so much I've learned. First of all, I didn't know that there were McDonald's brothers. The founding of our fast food nation later on Sunday morning. Digging for gold is only half as lucrative as digging for the delicacy Seth Doan has been sampling. It's a curious food found by a dog craved by humans. With all of the ingredients you could use as, as a chef, where does white truffle rank? What is on the top? Well, I mean, it's one of the, the best ingredients we can, we can use. Ahead on Sunday morning, we journey to Italy in search of the elusive and awfully expensive mm. white truffle. Buonissimo. Buonissimo. Serena Altschul has a close-up on the mysterious camera obscura. Luke Burbank lifts a glass to charities on tap. David Edelstein offers some Oscar nominations of his own and more. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. Yeah. Just ahead. We are America. Two days in Washington. And we are here to stay. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The next chapter in American history is playing out before our eyes. It began Friday on the Capitol steps with the inauguration of President Trump. And it continued yesterday on the streets of Washington and other cities around the country and the world. Reader Braver and Chip Reed share cover story duties this Sunday morning. We begin with Reader Braver. Express yourself so you can respect yourself. Hey, hey. Madonna's mini concert may have been a surprise, but so was the turnout for this event. Where are you from? My name is Tyra Smith. I'm from Hartford, Connecticut. And they seem to come from everywhere. Connecticut. Louisville, Kentucky. I am from Detroit, Michigan. I'm from Northern California. Lake George, Colorado. I'm from Ohio, and I'm here 
here because I have a lot of women in my life that I love. And their reasons for being here had a common theme. And why are you here? I'm here for women's rights and because I have a daughter and I'm looking out for her future. We need to show America that love still trumps hate. And it's time for us to really speak out about why we are so, <laughs> so alarmed by our new president. Though this was not billed as an anti-Trump march, there was a point to the sea of pink hats. What are these hats called? These are called cozy hats. Yeah. yeah. What do you think is the reason for them? It's because of what Donald Trump said about grabbing women without their consent, which is not okay. You look great. I wish you could see yourselves. It's like an ocean. And up on the stage, speakers like veteran women's rights activist Gloria Steinem and honorary March co-chair got right to the political point. Trump and his handlers have found a fox for every chicken coop in Washington, and a Twitter finger must not become a trigger finger. The event was called in part because of concern among women about the possible erosion of rights they've spent generations working to achieve. One of us can be dismissed, two of us can be ignored, but together we are a movement and we are unstoppable. The speeches went on for more than three hours, featuring everyone from Kamala Harris, California's first minority woman senator. And there is nothing more powerful than a group of determined sisters marching alongside with their partners and their determined sons and brothers and fathers standing up for what we know is right. To wounded veteran, now U.S. Senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth. I didn't give up literally parts of my body to have the Constitution trampled on. To event co-chair, Linda Sarsour. I stand here before you, unapologetically Muslim American. Unapologetically Palestinian American. To six-year-old Sophie Cruz, the daughter of undocumented immigrants. Let us fight with love, faith, and courage so that our families will not be destroyed. But it was not just in Washington. There were sister marches in scores of cities around the world, with speakers calling for a mass movement that will protect women's rights and elect officials who will help. But can one day of marches make a major difference? Well, the marches of the 60s on civil rights led to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. The marches and protests in Vietnam um, also had an impact. Lyndon Johnson decided not to seek his party's presidential nomination for another term as a result of those marches. But University of Connecticut political science professor Paul Hernson, who studies mass movements says there is another key ingredient, the follow-up. American politics is really about sustained uh, interest and sustained pressure. It's about organizing. It's about making sure that over time policymakers hear what you have to say and get the sense that you are determined. I am woman, hear me roar! <laughs> Speakers today vowed that this was only the beginning. It's about you going home after today and standing up and fighting in your communities. 
And though it was the stars that stole much of the spotlight, this girl is on fire. It will be the rank and file who determine whether this is a one-day flash in the pan, a day that included a chance for marchers to jeer at President Trump's motorcade as it sped into the White House. At the very least, for those who put their shoe leather and their hearts into the event, it will be a day that made history. This is Chip Reed. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute. On Friday, Donald John Trump took the oath of office to become the 45th president of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. After a sometimes brutal campaign and a bumpy transition, there was a sense of unity as four out of five living former presidents joined the new president to complete the peaceful transition of power. But in his inaugural address, President Trump took a surprisingly defiant tone, even castigating some of those sitting directly behind him. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. It was a populist call to arms. This moment is your moment. It belongs to you. That at times painted a dark picture of today's America. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. My immediate reaction was, that's Trump, uh, a calmer Trump, uh, a complete sentence Trump, but that's Trump. Leo Rabuffo is a professor of American history at George Washington University. Since Thomas Jefferson off and on, uh, there's been an emphasis on conciliation, national unity. There was much less Thank of that you. than usual. And he's speaking to, to his men and women, to his base mostly. After the ceremony, President Trump and new First Lady Melania Trump escorted former President Obama and wife Michelle to a waiting helicopter where the Obamas said goodbye before heading off for a vacation and a new life outside of the spotlight. In his first order of business as president, Mr. Trump signed a few executive orders in the ornate president's room in the Capitol. And in his first act as commander-in-chief, the president reviewed the troops from the Capitol steps. As tradition dictates, the president, vice president, and their families then proceeded down Pennsylvania Avenue for the inaugural parade. Along with the cheers, there were some boos. Just blocks away, large crowds of protesters loudly voiced their displeasure. Some smashed storefront windows, set fires, and even fought with police. Add to that yesterday's Women's March on Washington. Is there anything like these protests in the history of inaugurations? 
There have been no protests on this scale in the history of presidential inaugurations. None, really. On this scale. Uh, on the other hand, nobody threw bottles and rocks at the presidential limousine as they did with Nixon. But in terms of scale, this is absolutely unprecedented. On a positive note, the predicted rain never showed up. And as darkness fell Friday, the first family watched as thousands paraded by from every corner of the nation. Friday evening, the president and first lady celebrated at three inaugural balls. I did it my way. Dancing to my way a fitting song for a man who, from the start, has promised to do everything his way. If you ever change your mind. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. January 22nd, 1931, 86 years ago today. The day singer-songwriter Sam Cooke was born in Clarksdale, Mississippi. A minister's son, Cooke was raised in Chicago and sang mostly gospel music before releasing his first hit, You Send Me, in 1957. Darling, you send me I know you it soared to the top of the charts and earned Cook an appearance on Dick Clark's American Bandstand in 1959. Many other hits followed, including Chain Gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. Cupid. Cupid. Twisting the night away and shake. Shaking like a bowl of soup. But Cook's story came to an abrupt and shocking end in December 1964. At age 33, he was shot and killed in a Los Angeles motel by the manager who claimed self defense. The coroner's ruling of justifiable homicide in the sensational headline making case remains controversial to this day. But there's no dispute over Cook's talent and the role he played in popularizing soul music. In fact, his song, A Change Is Gonna Come, is today an enduring classic of the civil rights movement. But I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it Next, using these techniques, allow me to sneak up on the world. The upside-down world of Camera Obscura. Camera Obscura is a somewhat obscure name for a type of photography that quite literally turns our world upside down. But seeing is believing. Here's Serena Ulschel. When you think about being in a room in Times Square or New York, there's a certain tradition of art making, you know, Hopper and Robert Frank. 
Photographer Abelardo Morel does some of his best work in the dark. Let's see how it works here. Using these techniques allow me to sneak up on the world with a surprising view of it. First, Morel and his team black out the windows with plastic and duct tape. We've turned this room into essentially a giant camera. The inside of a camera. The, the inside of a camera. Then, when Morel cuts a hole in the plastic and puts a lens against the glass, something magical happens. The room's view is projected against the opposing wall, upside down, which Morel photographs. Well, you can sort of see oh, that the wow. image is naturally upside down. That's incredible. That's the way yeah. optics work. The technique is called camera obscura, Latin for darkened room. A thin ray of light streaming into a darkened space casts an upside-down image. It's a basic principle of optics, and it predates even photography. It's believed to have been used by Renaissance artists like Canaletto and Vermeer. Morel's photographs bring the outside in. Sometimes he flips the projections with a prism, making the images right side up. Looking at the world through these different lenses, maybe kind of bring you back to your first experiences of seeing, which were fabulous. As kids, we're, everything kind of seemed interesting. A little light on the wall, wow. If these photographs seem unusual or unexpected, it was the surprising reaction of his students at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design that inspired him to take his very first photograph using the principle of camera obscura. There were, I think in awe, there was a kind of almost a religious silence that struck me as a deep experience. And when he was commissioned to photograph Big Bend National Park in Texas almost 20 years later, he had another breakthrough. So the idea came that, well, why don't I try to make a portable device that could let me photograph? I thought maybe on the walls of the tent, but then, well, the ground is quite wonderful and it changes by the mile. He's since taken his tent on the road from the grounds of the Presidio in San Francisco to the dirt on home plate at Wrigley Field and the asphalt of New York City. We can always move the tent to have it right where we want it. Which is where, not long ago, he returned at our invitation to set up his camera on the Brooklyn waterfront. It's like working in an old-fashioned kind of way, like the old photographers who brought donkeys up a mountain with big cameras. It reminds me that, you know, it takes work to make interesting art. So amazing. I mean, we are seeing the flag moving, and I can see the colors of the red, white, and blue. OK, we're going to make an exposure. Nobody touch the tent. What's interesting is that this is the world that we've seen forever. Right. But somehow, by All using <laughs> this roundabout way of looking at it, it, it looks fresh. That ability to look at the world with fresh eyes might be Morel's shot at greatness. Still to come, fast foods, founding fathers. Oh, there you go. Nice job. And later. Not a problem in the world bothers you at this moment. Thank you. Fishing. Thank you. With the Fonz. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The Golden Arches? We're not. Ben Tracy takes us to a fast food landmark with a history that may surprise you. At a busy intersection in Downey, California, there's a monument to the founding of our fast food nation. This is the oldest McDonald's in the world now, and you've never been here, right? No, I've never been here. This is my first time. Wow. Jason McDonald French is the grandson of Dick McDonald, who, along with his brother Mac, started selling burgers, fries, and shakes in San Bernardino, California in 1948. The Downey location was the third one they built and the oldest still standing. So what was it like growing up with this particular family history? As children, we weren't allowed to talk about it. Our parents didn't want us going around saying that we were the grandson of Richard McDonald. It's always kind of been that family secret that no one you know, talked about. We never really advertised it. That could be because the McDonald's empire we know today, with nearly 37,000 stores in more than 100 countries, exists largely because of this man, whose last name is not McDonald. Did your grandfather ever mention Ray Kroc to you? Not really. Ray Kroc was kind of a touchy subject. Now, he worked with Ray for years, and they had a great relationship up until the end. The story of the McDonald brothers and Ray Kroc is told in the new film, The Founder. Michael Keaton plays Kroc. This is some operation. Care for a little tour? The milkshake mixer salesman who takes the McDonald brothers concept and franchises it across the country. We all kind of think we know McDonald's. Right. What did you learn that surprised you? Uh, there was so much I've learned. First of all, I didn't know that there were McDonald's brothers. And the more I learned about the story, it simply was just real interesting. In 1948, the McDonald brothers debuted a new kitchen assembly line they called the Speedy Service System. Speedy was the restaurant's mascot long before there was a Ronald McDonald. Speed, that's the name of the game. The first Their system was revolutionary. A fresh, delicious burger from Grill to Counter in 30 seconds. I didn't really understand completely how the McDonald brothers had created fast food as we know it today. It wasn't just a gimmick, this was world-changing. Have you been to McDonald's? Because we've got three right here in the Chicagoland area. John Lee Hancock is the film's director. People were so used to getting food in their cars and the thought of them having to get out of their car, go up to the window, order, and then not get utensils or silverware or plates or anything like that, um, people at first didn't know what to do with this information. In 1954, Ray Kroc delivered several milkshake mixers to the McDonald brothers. One of those, oh, it's a way to make the place stand out when you're driving by. The golden arches, I call them. Kroc was in awe of what they had created. Burger crossing! And convinced them to let him spread their golden arches from coast to coast. Franchise the damn thing. Mr. Kroc. Franchise? Franchise. Franchise. Kroc opened his first franchise McDonald's in Des Plaines, Illinois in 1955 and eventually started the McDonald's Corporation. In terms of his work ethic and his drive and his vision, uh, that part of Ray Kroc I really admire. Now, you know, at the point where <laughs> old Ray goes south in the movie, <laughs> not so much. 4%. No. 3.5%. Ray. What? No. Damn it. 
as an actor, that's a great thing to play and, and investigate. But as a human being, not real attractive. I am through taking marching orders from you. You will do as we say. Now, Croc feuded with the McDonald brothers for control. You have a contract. Contracts are like hearts. They're made to be broken. And in one of the shrewdest deals of all time, Ray Kroc bought the business and the rights to their name out from under the McDonald brothers in 1961 for $2.7 million. Today, the company is worth more than $100 billion, and Ray Kroc is considered its founder. The title of the movie, mm -hmm. you're being a little cheeky. It's intentionally misleading, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, what's your definition of, of a founder? Is it someone who has the idea or someone who expands the idea? Do you think by calling himself the founder, he was perpetuating a falsehood, or is that how he saw himself? I think he probably would argue that uh, the latter, but I think that probably was the former. I mean, from, from the way I look at it is, you know, yeah, he was just kind of, if nobody ever talked about the McDonald's brothers, that would have been fine with him. So people of a certain age come by here and this is nostalgic for them. Absolutely. I imagine this means a whole lot more to you. Sure. Something that my grandfather over tireless years came up with. French takes pride in what his grandfather created, but there's something the family rarely talked about. Look, fellas. You'll get your full royalties, all right? The handshake deal in which Ray Kroc promised the McDonald brothers a half percent royalty on all future McDonald's proceeds. Let's make a deal. The family says he never paid them a cent. All right. Knowing now that that would be worth about $100 million a year? I think it's worth, uh, yeah, $100 million a year. Pretty crazy. Is there bitterness about that in your family? No. No. How? My grandfather was never bitter over it. My why would we be bitter over something that my grandfather wasn't bitter over? Well, there's a hundred million reasons you could be. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. For Jason McDonald French, seeing his family's story told on the big screen is its own form of payback. We were overjoyed with the fact that the story is being told the, the right way and that uh, it's being historically accurate. They did create fast food. They started that from the beginning, and I don't think they get enough credit for what they actually created. Next, Ben Stein on our next chapter. The torch is passed. Our contributor Ben Stein was among the millions of us watching Friday's transfer of power. Now for a few words about Donald Trump's inauguration day. I'm a Republican. I voted for Trump but I don't see how he can possibly do anything like what he says he can do. I'm an economist by training, and from what I see, nations grow great and rich by free trade and by allowing free enterprise to grow freely. Government supervision and bossing around private corporations might be good showmanship, but it just does not work to produce lasting prosperity. Not ever. We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism. I don't see how Mr. Trump can wipe radical Islamic terrorism off the map anytime soon. It's just not that kind of enemy. It can't be bombed away. It has to be fought patiently and painfully over decades or even centuries, but calling it by its name is a fine start. What I did like a lot about the Trump day was his stating unequivocally that he considers helping the poor 
and the besieged minorities in some cities and towns, maybe in all cities and towns, to be a vital priority. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. It's war there in the black and Hispanic neighborhoods, civil war. I love the pledge Mr. Trump made to end it. It should be our number one priority as a nation. Dozens shot and killed in our major cities every weekend has got to stop. But what I liked best was his greeting of Mr. Barack Obama and Melania's greeting of Michelle and Mr. and Mrs. Pence's greetings and affection for former Veep and Mrs. Biden. I have always loved Biden and still do, and I really love the fact that the transition of power in our glorious nation is done with a hug and a kiss on the cheek, not with tanks and cannons and secret police. That is glory indeed. And a special shout out to Mrs. Hillary Clinton, my schoolmate from Yale long ago. To see her and Bill embrace Mr. and Mrs. Trump made me tear up. This is the greatness of an America rooted in love for our fellow man and not in brute force. Don't lock her up. Call her up for advice. She's an intelligent woman. God bless President and Mrs. Trump. God bless Mr. and Mrs. Obama and the Clintons. And God bless America. Coming up... What charity would you like to support with your order today? Pint size charity. There's nothing unusual about offering beers on tap. But what's this we're hearing about charities on tap. We sent Luke Burbank to Portland, Oregon to investigate. At first glance, the Oregon public house looks like any other hipster pub in Portland. There are lovingly crafted local beers. Someone's playing a ukulele. The only thing missing are the free-range chickens. But take a closer look and you'll notice something unusual. This is the most Portland thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And it really, that feels a little like that, like, oh, a nonprofit pub, oh, jeez. Oh, Portland, what are you gonna do next, you know? Yes, you heard right. The Oregon Public House calls itself America's first nonprofit pub. The idea came to founder Ryan Seri exactly how you'd think it would. I was having a beer. I was drinking, sitting in the backyard with my buddy, and I thought, what about a pub? Because uh, there's nothing more Portland than nonprofits and breweries. He's not kidding. Portland is home to over 60 breweries and nearly 7,000 nonprofits. And so the two coming together were just like totally harmonious. What can I get for you today? Now, to be clear, the public house does make a profit, it just gives all those profits away. Our menu uh, options are eat, drink, give. So you place your order of food. Can I have the summer vegetarian sandwich with fries? You place your order of drink. Chinook IPA? Okay. And then you choose where you want your profits to go to from a list of charities. And then what charity would you like to support with your order today? So we are able to track where the money goes for each charity. And at the end of the month, whatever we make, we donate it in the way of our customers choosing. Here's how it works. Every six months, a new batch of charities goes on the menu. Over the last three years, the pub has donated more than $100,000 to dozens of good causes, from PTAs to urban farms, from homeless teens to cancer survivors. Do you notice that certain charities kind of, for lack of a better word, perform better than oh, others? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm looking up there and I notice, you know, for instance, one has a dog on it. Yeah. That's probably... 
doing it's, okay, right? Right, I, we've definitely found that different logos work better. For them. My advice would be, no matter what your charity is actually about, put a dog on it. Put there. a dog on it, or a bird. It's Portland. Come yeah, on. one of the two. <laughs> put a bird on it. Even Ryan Sari has to admit, the whole thing feels a little like something from the TV show Portlandia. Put a bird on it. But it can mean serious money for charities. All right, so which charity would you like? Um, I would like the Wayfinding Academy. One of the current charities on tap is the Wayfinding Academy, a brand new college. Starting a college from scratch is not a thing people do. Which is kind of appropriate because running a not-for-profit pub is also not a thing people do. Right, which is why we're good friends and perfect partners. Wayfinding doesn't have the advantage of a furry logo. So Michelle Jones is drumming up donations table by table, pint by pint. I'm with Wayfinding Academy, uh, which is a brand new college here in Portland. When you're one of the charities on tap for a month, you pick a night of the week. And so a team of us, usually two or three or four, come and serve from four to eight. And tonight I'll be one of those servers. Order food, order drink, choose a charity. So these are the six that are up right now and their descriptions are on the back of the menu. And on this day, the personal touch seemed to be working. What do you think of it so far? I think it's pretty cool. I mean, we walked in, they greeted us right away, told us all about it, ushered us to the bar to order something, and pick our charity. <laughs> How does it strike you now that you're actually here? I think it's comfortable, it's a nice atmosphere, and I think it's an awesome idea. What did you pick? We picked the Wayfair. Wayfinding um, Academy? Wayfinding, yeah. yeah. And all those pints really add up. Awesome, great Wayfinding Academy it is. Cheers. Thank you. In the end, the contribution we'll get from the Oregon Public House will be essentially the equivalent of one of our major donors for the year. It, it all depends a little bit. It's very On how much beer I drink tonight? On how much beer everybody drinks. And I'm willing to do my part. I appreciate that, Luke. Thanks. Believe it or not, there's actually another nonprofit venture in Portland called Ex Novo. How long does it take to make a batch of beer? A little over two weeks, usually from raw ingredients to when you're enjoying it. Joel Gregory started the brewery back in 2014. I mean, can we do some good for, for charity here? Let's do it right now. Slash. I'm gonna pour you a, a nice light lager. Here's the charity and uh, lagers. Ex Novo hasn't given away as much money as the Oregon Public House yet. So far, just about $10,000 or so. But because they're selling cans and bottles all over the Pacific Northwest and even exporting to Japan. We are set up. I believe, to, to donate a half million by 2020. So that's less than four years away. And like, you seem like a nice guy, and it's good to help the world. Mm -hmm. But some part of you like thinking, man, I could really use an extra <laughs> half million dollars. I guess. I mean, I, I've just always been wired. Like, I, I, I just need enough. I don't really care that much about being overly wealthy. So that's kind of why this thing is a nonprofit. And Ryan Sari of Oregon Public House thinks this altruism idea could take off nationally. I get phone calls, emails every week, probably every day from people around the country that are interested in this model in their city, and they always say the same thing. Uh, this would work great in northeast Albuquerque. This would be amazing in South Toledo. And I really think that they're probably right. Meaning even more Americans soon may have the chance to warm some hearts just by having a cold one. Next. They were just like, all right, everybody's going. Yeah, and then everybody was like, yeah. yeah. Class trip. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. After a bitterly divisive election, coming together for the inauguration was going to be a tall order for some of us. Still, a busload of Florida high school kids found a way. Here's Steve Hartman. You could tell from the long hugs that this was no ordinary field trip. In fact, for these students from Immokalee High School in Florida, getting a chance to attend the inauguration was one of the greatest opportunities of their lives. They were just like, all right, everybody's going. Yeah, and then everybody was like, yeah. And I was like, man, this is amazing. Us giving this opportunity is honestly a great honor. It was exactly what you'd expect to hear from Donald Trump fans. Did you guys all support Donald Trump? But here's the twist. <laughs> no comment. He's different. You have to look at it from like a different perspective. Truth is, during the campaign, many students here were scared to death of Mr. Trump. Immokalee is a town of field workers, immigrants, some legal, some not. Many of their children are the dreamers, the very people President Trump has at times threatened to evict. And just like what he says he'll do is just kind of scary. And you never know when you might get that phone call and you're saying, okay, my friend just got taken away. Which is why when the nonprofit Immokalee Foundation offered to send some of the high school's best and brightest to the inauguration, there was significant pushback. Oh, yeah. Yeah. my mom. Why are you going? Why are you supporting him, this and that? She was mad at me. She almost didn't want to let me come. Brian Reyes's parents are both field workers. Up until the morning of the trip, his mom was still repeating, Usted no tiene que ir. You don't have to go. But Brian and the others kept right on packing and planning to proudly attend. I mean, just out of respect, though. Because yeah. he, he will be our president. So whether we like it or not, that's yeah. what he's going to be. To some, that may sound like surrender. To others, it's bold and brave. But to the kids from Immokalee, their attendance in Washington, D.C. was not a statement of any kind. This wasn't about Trump the president. This was about we the people, about coming together to witness firsthand one of the country's most defining traditions. Congratulations, Mr. President. Adults sometimes think everything has to be about furthering an agenda. So thanks to these young people for reminding us that any civil discourse should at least begin with civility. Still to come, Mo Rocca on the river. Oh, get him, Henry! Oh, 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 wow. <laughs> With Henry Winkler. And... So there it is, another one. On the prowl for white gold. Wow. All right, school's out, time for action. The window. Oh, you're not going to be able to open that. It's painted shut. Ye of little faith. <laughs> it's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Jane Pauley. Henry Winkler had happy days of plenty on that hit TV show of yesteryear. And to this day, he has plenty of fans. One in particular, as Mo Rocca shows us in our Sunday profile. Look at these front teeth. They're great. They're perfect. They're like a toothpaste commercial. After 38 years of marriage, I think he's so handsome. Stacy Winkler still adores her husband. He's adorable. Look at his hands. They're so tan That's and handsome. That's very kind of you. You're very pretty. <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> and again, who doesn't love Henry Winkler? After all, he was the Fonz on the classic TV series Happy Days. All right, now listen up, girl. One time, one time only. Line right up here, kiss the Fonz for a buck. Now that's a bargain at any price. The role of the Fonz was the foundation on which I built the rest of my life. He built the house I live in. But Winkler didn't always feel the love, especially in the Manhattan apartment where his parents, immigrants from Nazi Germany, raised him. They had an affectionate phrase for me called Dummer Hund. And for those of you who don't understand German, that means dumb dog. They were convinced that I was lazy, that I was not living up to my potential. The teachers said the same thing. So I was grounded most of my high school career. How old were you when you read your first book? 31. What neither Henry nor his parents knew was that he was dyslexic. So dyslexic, he could barely read. It was horrible. It was humiliating. It was scary. And I learned to memorize as much as I could from any page and then improvise. How many colleges did you apply to? I applied to 28, and I got into two. Winkler managed to get through Boston's Emerson College, then was accepted to the prestigious Yale School of Drama after auditioning with a Shakespearean monologue, sort of. Lawrence and the dog, and he loved his dog, and he would take his dog for a walk. Yes, it was a monologue that he improvised. The sky was that, uh, that eerie blue just before a storm. I made it up. After Yale, he acted on stage and in commercials. Look out, world, the Fonz is coming! Hey. Then at the age of 27, Winkler became the coolest high school dropout in America. What's in the box, Fonz? My engagement rings. <laughs> you give girls engagement rings? Hey, don't be silly. They give them to me. He was one of TV's biggest stars, but his dyslexia continued to interfere with not just his reading, but also physical coordination. Riding a motorcycle, was that challenging? Very. I could not piece together the gear the gear, the speed, the brake, but there was too much I couldn't uh, comprehend. Was that embarrassing for you? Well, I wish that I could so it would have looked great if I wrote it, you know, but I only wrote it for about uh, 15 feet in actuality. But Winkler was so convincing, playing smooth and confident, that the offers got bigger. Why did you turn down the lead in Greece? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's it. No, the thing is that I had this, this thing. Well, I'm not gonna be typecast. You know, I'm gonna beat the system. 
And really what I should have done is just shut up and gone to work. What was the toughest point in your career? Not being able to work from 1983 to really 1991 as an actor. Happy Days is over. What do I do now? And I had no idea. And being rudderless is painful. To fill the void, Winkler became a producer. He helped to create the original MacGyver TV series. And cut. Great. And he directed. And while he was away working, Stacy raised their three kids. I knew that his first love was his work. And I knew that he had to work in order to feel valued. My belief in him could not fill him because he needed to feel that for himself. That's, I mean, that is a, I mean, as I said, that's very candid. What, your reaction? My reaction is that uh, I'm very lucky. And over the past 25 years, Winkler has worked constantly in hundreds of movies and TV shows, including Arrested Development. So they're not filing charges. All right, I got them to call your flea from justice religious expression. This is a lawyer. Yeah, he's, he's very good. I think he has grown and evolved so much that I see less and less of that self-doubt. Oh, there you go. Nice job. Part of that confidence comes from a nice pastime. So beautiful. Look at that one, buddy. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. That Henry and Stacy share. Henry, if there's one word that this requires, what is it? Patience. Tenacity. Great shot, my friend. One more. Thank you. Thank you. The Winklers have gone fishing. Get him, get him. There you go. Fly fishing in oh, Montana yes. and here on the Snake River in Idaho for more than 25 years. What hooked you? The place of it, the sound of it, the green of it. And what happens when you're fishing? You cannot concentrate on anything else. Not a problem right. in the world right. bothers you at this moment. Oh, get him, Henry! Oh, oh, yeah. oh, wow! <laughs> And fly fishing, Winkler says, gave him the courage to conquer his greatest fear, the written word. I am an actor, a producer, a director. With Lynn, we have written 32 novels, and I am in the bottom 3% academically in America. We are in chapter five. Okay. Yes, Henry Winkler is the co-author along with Lynn Oliver, of a series of books about Hank Zipser, a fourth grader who has trouble reading. Sound familiar? We have written 4,476 words. Wow, and they're all good. Thank you so much. Their books have become bestsellers. Thank you for being here. I mess everything up. And the basis for a popular series in Britain. And just because reading, writing, and maths might be hard for you, it has nothing to do with how brilliant you are. Henry Winkler, America's most famous teenager. Get him, get him. Nice job, big fish. He's 71 Whoa, now. 
Nice job. All right. There we go. Nice job. You learn that where there's a will, there's a way. I live by tenacity and gratitude. Tenacity gets you where you want to be, and gratitude allows you not to be angry or frustrated along the way. At this moment, when a lot of men my age are sitting at home, I am in the golden moment. Come here. Golden moment. Happy days, indeed. Ahead. This area is a, a good place for travel. A dogged pursuit. Farma, 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 brio, farma. Farma, brio. Digging for gold is one way to extract wealth from the earth. Digging up a rare and far more delicious treasure is another. Seth Doan takes us to an auction at a castle near the town of Alba in Italy. The bidding for this exotic food went up by the hundreds. And then by the thousands. The rare delicacy on the auction block was displayed with great fanfare. Daniel McVicker, a 20-year veteran of the Bold and the Beautiful, is a huge fan of this unusual-looking, perishable product, the white truffle. I remember every meal I've ever had with truffles in it. No. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was a charity auction, so the price was inflated. Still, a pair of truffles sold for more than $100,000, about $2,500 an ounce. That's double the price of gold and bought by a famous Chinese chef. To appreciate why these truffles, a mushroom-like fungus, can be so pricey, it's necessary to see how they're found. This area is a, a good place for truffle. Natale and Giorgio Romagnolo are fifth-generation truffle-hunting brothers. You're looking for a certain type of tree, a certain time of year, and a certain weather. Yes, the weather is important, and the ground. Most important is the dog. Rio is trained to sniff for truffles, which grow underground. And Natale told us each hunter knows a secret place. This secret place, they go only during the night. Uh, our father don't uh, send us his secret place. He didn't even we, tell you, your no, father? No, we discover it only when he dead. That secrecy and their scarcity makes finding one all the more delicious. He's found one? So you want him to smell it and find it and then you do the work? Oh, wow. There it is. That's a white truffle there. Yes, yes. Natale showed us the difference between the more common black truffle, still a delicacy, and the white truffle. The, this has a perfume, but the fragrance here is so much more. The price, too. The price, too, is, uh, is about 10 times more expensive. This, white than black. This is 10 times more expensive? Exactly. This region of Italy, Piemonte, is known for its rolling hills and its wine. 
For 86 years, the town of Alba has hosted a truffle fair, where tartuffi, its Italian name, easily sell for hundreds or thousands of dollars each. Yet to aficionados, all of this eyebrow raising isn't about price, but smell, usually described as an enticing mix of honey, garlic, and earth. For us, uh, the white is uh, uh, the king. The white truffle is the king? Is the king. Why yes, the king? We can find it uh, only in this period. White truffle season spans from late September into January. That's prime time at Tartuffi Mora, where we saw the pre-shipping scramble. White truffles are only fresh for a few days, so they're bought and shipped within hours to exclusive restaurants and shops in 31 countries. Brothers Alessandro and John Maria Bonino run the company. My phone is always night and day because I want that my clients can call me anytime. So your phone will ring in the middle of the night, it'll be some uh, sort of sometimes, truffle yes, emergency? Uh, yeah, emergency. The founder of this company, Giacomo Mora, was credited with introducing this unusual food to the West back in the 1950s. Mora understood the importance of the truffle and started giving the best truffles as gifts to famous people, John Maria explained. He sent one to Marilyn Monroe, another to President Harry Truman, and the town of Alba became known worldwide. Do some people come specifically looking for the white truffle? Yeah, most of them. Damiano Negro is a Michelin-starred chef at Villa della Miglia, just outside Alba. You dream when you're a young chef to, to see the face, you know, when you slice the white truffle on the plate. Whoa. You like watching people's expressions? Yes. To show us, he whipped up a little pasta dish with simple ingredients, butter, a little olive oil, and Parmesan. The idea is to keep the focus on the generous shaving of white truffle, which, befitting their value, he keeps locked in a safe inside the fridge. Mmm. Buonissimo. Buonissimo. When you use it, when you have it, you'll you fall in love with it. That's, that's, that's a problem. Because it's expensive. <laughs> it's an expensive love. And it's all part of the appeal. Add to that a little mystery wow. and some that's secrecy. Incredible. And you have a recipe for obsession. We're off to the movies next. These are golden days for movie fans and the start of a very big week. Our critic David Edelstein has a sneak preview. Let's talk about the all-important holiday movie season. What's that you say? The holidays ended weeks ago? Ah, yes. But now is when, like, 98% of the country can finally see the movies critics gushed about in November and December that were only in theaters in New York and L.A. to qualify for awards. With Oscar nominations set to be announced Tuesday, now is actually peak holiday movie season. And you don't just get to see these movies. You can be part of the backlash against them or the backlash against the backlash. Take La La Land, Damien Chazelle's eye candy musical with the inhumanly gorgeous Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. I just heard you play and I wanted... 
critics fell all over themselves in December. Now all I hear is, the singing and dancing aren't exactly singing in the rain. It misrepresents jazz. It's too white. City of stars. I'll start a backlash against the backlash. It moves like an old-fashioned escapist dream with a modern emotional toughness. When people complain about La La Land, I go, la, 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 la. What did you expect? Barry Jenkins' Moonlight is another award season biggie that makes some people say, I don't get the hype. Well, in a way, they're right. It's a gentle, slow-paced exploration of sexual and racial identity, so delicate that critical hype bruises it. So don't go in expecting to be blown away, and maybe you'll be blown away. Is there say I got to like you? No. All right, then. Don't you eat every day? There's also gobs of hype about Fences, based on August Wilson's great play about a husband and father warped by racism into a big jerk. Me and your mama worked that out. Between us and liking your black ass wasn't part of the bargain. My problem is it still feels like a play. And Denzel Washington, dynamic as he is, needed a director to take him down a peg. Except he was the director, and he was swinging for the Fences, a.k.a the Oscars, where the frontrunner... I can't commute from Boston every day until he turns 18. ...is Casey Affleck for his portrait of a man in a fog of grief in Manchester by the sea. You can see that, too, if you like your sadness unleavened by even a tinge of hope. Well, there hasn't been much hype about 20th century women, Mike Mills's bittersweet tribute to women who helped him become a man. You know, having your heart broken is a tremendous way to learn about the world. One is his mother, played by Annette Bening, in the year's most vivid performance. I don't get why people aren't falling on their knees and singing odes to joy, because Annette Bening makes every movie a holiday. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.